Hey everyone, this is Jim. We're still on break and rebroadcasting some of our most popular episodes. This week, we're going to hear from Annie Harper about basic income and the disabled community. Hello and welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. Jim is off this week. We often compare and contrast basic income to other social benefit programs that we have in the U.S., though often we kind of gloss over the details about how they work and you know how much of a burden the bureaucracy is and what the difference would be between a basic income and some of these programs. Today we have a guest who has delved into how a basic income would contrast versus the current programs we have around disabilities and ensuring that people with disabilities in the U.S. can stay out of poverty. And so we're very happy to welcome Annie Harper of the Program for Recovery and Community Health in the Yale School of Medicine. Welcome, Annie. Hi, good to be here. So could you start by describing the main benefit systems we already have targeted toward disabled people in the U.S.? Okay, so um, and just to be clear from the beginning, I work almost exclusively with people with uh, mental disabilities. So the the focus of my of of my expertise is on that particular population, but the benefit system is largely the same. So if I was to describe it in detail, it would be here all day. So I'll try and be brief. Essentially, if you have a work history, so if you've worked for long enough and earned enough to build up enough credits, then you you can get Social Security Disability Income (SSDI). That's a monthly income. The amount depends on your past work history, but the maximum currently is around $2,650 or so. Um, Is that a month or a year? That's a monthly income. Okay. On average, people who get SSDI tend to receive around $1,200. People who don't have a work history or who may have worked, but for um, a short short periods of time or very low low wage work, And that tends to be um, truer for people with serious mental illness. They receive an alternative benefit known as supplemental security income, which the monthly payment um, for that is uh, currently $735 a month. Someone who has a work history, but a very small work history, so is eligible for a little bit of SSDI, but less than $735, can have that topped up with the supplemental security income till it gets to $735. Got it. So if you don't have any real work history, you're you're pretty much stuck at that 735 number. Yeah, but anyone has a, who's been classified as having a disability can get that 735. And then typically people who earn that very low level will also get food stamps of a, a little bit under $200 of food stamps. I see. So given the incentives of these programs, why do disabled people sometimes opt to not accept work that is available to them? Okay, so if you're on, it actually depends if you're on SSDI or or SSI. If you're on SSI, there's really a very strong disincentive in terms of going back to work. So you're getting 735 a month. If you then earn money over and above that, once you've earned $65, then any additional dollar you earn, you will lose 50 cents of your SSI. Now, in theory, this sounds reasonable, right? Because you're you're working, you're getting more money. Overall, you're getting richer. But what it effectively means is that you're being taxed at a 50% rate on that money that you're earning. And also another disincentive for people with SSI to work is that if you save money over $2,000, then you lose your SSI entirely. And you also lose your health insurance if you have over $1,600. 
there's also a whole kind of um, the, the the reporting system and the process by which you lose your SSI if you get work income. There are time lags involved. So often you'll end up having to repay SSI that you received in a month when you actually earned income um, and so weren't entitled to it. Wow. So th- that health insurance part is is you know, you know very telling because it's not just a calculation about how much money you have at the end of the month. It's over a certain line, you're you're losing a very essential benefit. Absolutely. For people with social security disability income, SSDI, the disincentives to work are, are much less. You can earn income up to a, quite a high amount before you lose your SSDI income. There's no asset limit, so you can save what you like. But there are still limits around how long you can work for and how much you can earn. And it's they are extremely complex. And often people because they don't really understand how working might affect their income, they, they get afraid and they decide it's not worth taking the risk. I see. And that actually leads into my next question, which is around the burden of the bureaucracy associated with these benefits. So how much of a burden is that to have to constantly kind of fill out forms and show uh, how much you've earned or how much you deserve? So one of the things... Um, one of my sort of early findings for me personally when I started working in this area was the recognition that being poor in this country is kind of a full-time job in terms of, you know, make it surviving. And that's also true for people who already have access to benefits. Getting them in the first place, making sure that you stay eligible, um, reporting all the information you need to report even if you're not working, can be complex and overwhelming. And then if you do decide to work and you therefore need to report your income, it really in itself is at least a part-time job and is mentally extremely taxing for anyone, regardless of your mental health status. So something that you've pointed out in your writing and that I'm sure listeners of this podcast are already thinking is that if we had a basic income, we solve a lot of these problems. But you've also pointed out that none of the models of basic income that you've seen are sufficient to actually meet the needs of the disabled. So what do you mean by that? So maybe I I think I'd like to start off by saying why I think there is promise in a basic income for this population. I'm really talking through the thought process that I went through when I first started learning about the basic income. For the first few things I read and the the conversations I had, it seemed like, wow, this is exactly what we need. And that was because, um, so first of all, if someone is has a disability and is applying for, for these benefits, it can often take months and years to get them. So you have people living on no income um, for a fairly long period of time. So that's you know, problem number one that in theory a basic income could solve. And then the second one is related to the point that I made around the bureaucracy and the disincentives for work, right? So obviously, if you just had the income, regardless of whether you worked or not, that would take away a whole burden and kind of time suck that people with disabilities have to face. Another thing I I, I think we got excited about is the, so currently people who are using mental health services, the health service providers, the clinicians, the doctors, the social workers, etc., often spend far too much of their time helping people with their benefits questions and problems rather than dealing with their um, mental health problems. So we were excited the idea that this could kind of take away that pressure. And finally, there was the the promise of reducing the the very, very severe stigma that people with disabilities face, and particularly people with mental illness. All people with disabilities are stigmatized in our society, but people with mental illness can often be stigmatized even worse because often their disability is sort of invisible. 
So they can be easily typecast as kind of malingerers or people who are just lazy and making bad decisions. Right. And receiving government benefits because of that, you know, exactly. can maybe add to that stigma. Oh, totally. And that that's actually a huge part of it, that if you're not working and you don't look like you're sick, you know, you're, you're written off as a kind of lazy, feckless person. So the, without going into it in too much detail, it seemed like, wow, this is what we need. The basic income, it'll solve all these problems. But when I started to look into it a little further, I realized it wasn't that simple. And the the concerns that I have around it are really, I think there are three. The first is that, and, and, I, and I took the model that Guy Standing um, presents in his recent book. So I know there are plenty of models out there of what a basic income would look like, but I just took that one because it seemed to be one that was well-developed. So say um, everyone received $1,000 a month in this in this country as a basic income. If you can't work and earn money on top of that, you're still going to be pretty poor. Mm-hmm. So that was like concern number one, people will still be poor. And, you know, live, when, when you have a disability, life is typically more expensive, not less expensive. So standing has an answer to that. Um, which is that people with disabilities should receive a disability supplement over and above the basic income amount to cover any costs related to their disability and to compensate for their inability to work. Now, as soon as I read that, I was like, well, that looks familiar. That looks kind of like the current disability benefit system. So then the questions I had is, well, how would that work in practice? Would we have the same bureaucracy around determining eligibility? Who would get how much? What kind of disability would need more than less? Would you have to reapply frequently? Under what circumstances would you lose your supplement? How would that loss, would it be graduated or total? Would there be asset limits? And all of a sudden I realized that potentially this would just be a a different, a less negative version, because if you're getting $1,000 a month, at least you're not going to be totally destitute. But I just felt like the bureaucracy around it could be as burdensome as the bureaucracy we currently have. So it's sort of a a catch-22, where if you have a universal system, you don't have the bureaucracy, but then you don't have any additional benefits for disabled people. Precisely. And then as soon as you have additional benefits, you're back to the bureaucracy. Okay. Um, I also wanted to mention a, a third concern that I had as I read, and I began to realize that the, the and I know this has been much discussed in, 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 the, in the field, that basic income is not the same to all people. And if we ended up with some kind of change such as this would obviously go through some kind of a process of political compromise. And if we ended up with a kind of Charles Murray style, basic income only type of system, um, where all social services were supplanted by that, that would be absolutely disastrous for people with disabilities, because they don't only rely on their disability income, they rely on a whole set of social services, including the case management that comes with that support. So that's another a real fear that if basic income were implemented and it were the, the kind of stripped down version that some people support, that would be truly disastrous. Uh-huh. So it's important to have those those services that you aren't cash, essentially, that um, that are actual, you know, human services um, as well. And, and if I may throw in one more concern that I have. Sure. So the working with people with mental illness in particular really kind of highlights the issue of spending decisions, right? There's a, again, some people um, on the on the right see basic income as, you know, you get your money and then if you mess up with that money, you're kind of left to the next month to survive. The assumption being that if you make a bad decision with your money, that's your fault. Now, people with mental illness 
often make bad decisions with their money. And we have an entire system set in place to actually remove control, financial control from people who aren't making good decisions with their money. But I think it's important to understand that lots of us make bad decisions with our money. Um, and actually, our research has shown very clearly that the types of financial difficulties that people with mental illness face are very often not related to their mental illness at all but related to the fact they don't have enough money, the, the scarcity mindset that I know you've talked about in previous podcasts, family pressures, a financial system that doesn't work for them and often actually exploits them, you know, consumerist pressures, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we really need to, um, not just for people with mental illness, but more generally, think about how the kind of consumer environment, the financial services environment would still be a problem even if everybody had income. I guess the point I wanted to make is that given the kind of consumer environment and the financial services system that we operate in, many of us make bad decisions with our money. But the poorer you are, the more disastrous the consequences of making bad decisions. So I think poor people often get blamed as for being kind of feckless and irresponsible because they get themselves into financial difficulties. But actually, they're often doing nothing different from what wealthier people do. It's just that they have no cushion to sort of protect against those mistakes or those decisions. Right. And those mistakes just you know have an inherently larger effect. You know, um, you know losing $50 means a lot more to some people than others. Or it doesn't have to be 50, it could be a thousand. And we know that the financial services in particular, it's generally more expensive to be banked, to get credit, to get insurance, to have access to savings products if you're poor than if you're wealthier. The poorer you are, the more expensive these things are. So that's another problem that poor people face. And people with mental illness fall into that category of being poor. So given all that, if you are able to design a, a basic income program for the US, what would it look like? So that's really difficult to answer, as you know. And I haven't been thinking about the basic income for that long. This is a fairly new area for me to be looking into. So I'll just throw some very um, idealistic ideas out there and maybe it'll stick. So based on the population that I work with, I feel like what would work if basic income were to be the kind of platform is the basic income plus. And that plus has to include free healthcare and free education. Without that, I think it could be disastrous, as I've said. But I also think that subsidized housing, subsidized transportation, food for emergency situations have to be sort of part of the package as they are now. But also, and I think this is maybe a broader sort of philosophical question, but opportunities to not necessarily work might be the wrong word, but opportunities to pass time. I think that one of the things we know uh, working with people with mental illness, that work isn't just about making money. It's also about being occupied, being productive, being socially valued. And not everyone can easily find a way to be those things, right, to be occupied, productive, valued and social without some kind of help and structure to to help them get there. So for me, you know, income isn't enough having a, a sort of structured environment like most of us do. Right? I have a job, I have an office, I go to the office and I, there are people there. So I get help with that. I think people with mental illness in particular really need the support to, to be sort of have that in their life. And then in addition to this kind of basic income plus, I can't see anything really working unless we have a much improved and re well-regulated financial services industry and debt industry and retail industry, frankly, all of these consumer and financial industries that currently make it very, very difficult for people on low incomes to manage their money effectively. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that sounds good to me. I, I like this plan. Could you say just a little bit more about the sort of mechanisms you would put in to structure people's time if, if that's what they need or, or just what that would look like? So at the moment, we have a uh, the, 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 the response we have at the moment for people with mental illness who are struggling to find work is supported employment. And it tends to be helping people get into work that they're suited to, which most often is low skilled, low wage work. And actually, that's one of the the other kind of factors why people typically prefer to stay on benefits is because the kind of work that's available to them is not just low paid, but the work out the hours of work are unpredictable and insecure. The work itself is insecure. So it would be something much larger than what we currently have. Um, I've listened and read about the idea of a sort of a guaranteed jobs program. And there's something about it that's appealing to me that everyone should have the opportunity to go out and do something that can be construed as productive and valuable. Obviously, there's a thousand things that people can and should be doing that doesn't isn't considered work, whether that's volunteering, sort of community activities, um, got even work in their own homes. I don't really have a good answer to it, as you can tell. But what I envisage is something that, that's why I didn't use the word work. I like the idea of people being able to be occupied and productive in whichever way that they're able to and that they're interested in. Uh-huh. And that we should have a structure to provide that if, um, at least for some people. Yes, because at the moment, you know, supported employment is not, it doesn't just simply connect people to potential work. Each person is linked to a case manager who helps them, talks, motivate them, encourage them, find jobs that work for them, support them while they're in the job. And that can be for people who have mental illness and are isolated um, from society, that kind of ongoing support can be really, really crucial to helping them stay part of the community. Well, those are all the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think the only thing that I did want to add that I haven't mentioned is simply that the, again, there's much broader debates around who pays for the basic income than I can get into here or that I even understand. But I do think it's absolutely crucial that a basic income isn't allowed to become really just another version of food stamps, which in many ways just subsidizes companies that don't pay high enough wages. So I would really like to see the basic income being something that is a that really addresses wealth inequality as well as just providing people with a basic income. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Erin. That was Annie Harper of the Program for Recovery and Community Health at the Yale School of Medicine on the Basic Income Podcast. I found that conversation really insightful because so often when we compare basic income to other social programs, we say, well, you'd get to skip a lot of the bureaucracy that is associated with those programs, but they're also very important and we should be very cautious before saying that a basic income makes another program redundant or unnecessary. And we often just leave it at that. And so it's very helpful to actually speak to someone who works with people who are often quite needy and get get a lot of benefits from these programs that provide a lot of structure and that go beyond cash and that are more than just some money. They, they also provide human services. And as we get closer to an actual basic income in the U.S., these are the fine details that we are going to need to be thinking about more and more. What do other programs look like in a world where we do have basic income? 
that'll do it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And uh, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the podcast service of your choice. And while you're there, leave us a rating or review. It will really help other people find the podcast and bring these conversations to a broader audience. Also, please tell your friends, because that is the best form of advertising, is someone you actually know saying, hey, I, I heard this interesting interview. I think you should check it out. And speaking of which, one more recommendation for you, which is to head over to the Economic Security Project YouTube page. We uh, had CashCon, the first ever CashCon in San Francisco a few weeks ago. ton of really good conversations about basic income, and many of those are in video form on their YouTube page right now. I highly recommend checking them out. All right, talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.